CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I'm not a doctor. Well, you could say that again. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, April 15th with, yes, it's the theme of the week, a mystery guest. Who will it be? Ooh, will our connection stay on? That's another mystery. I think it will. Ooh, it's just moments away. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like the Chicago Federation of Labor, SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana is a sponsor, as well as Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what to smoke. What to think politically so much, chicagoreader.com. If you are a clueless Chicagoan, get a clue, chicagoreader.com. And chicagoreader.com slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. You should check that out as well because, well, not only will you be able to see our endless archive of Ben Jarofsky episodes, over 900 episodes for you to check out, you will also be able to become a binhead. That's right. That is what we call avid listeners of this program. Binheads. Are you a binhead? No? Well, become one. ChicagoReader.com slash Jarofsky. It's a three-tier system when you can become a binhead. You can either join the alley, the avenue, or you can be living large on Benny Boulevard. It's true. ChicagoReader.com slash Jarofsky. Go check it out. Become a binhead. Support the program. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Thursday, April 15th, and live from downstate Illinois and his attic, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, another mystery guest. Oh my God, can you feel the suspense? And we welcome Matt Ginsburg and Cheryl Miller. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Forever War Thursday. And here's why. (laughs) President uh, Biden uh, yesterday announced the end of the Forever War. That would be our war in Afghanistan, a war most Americans, I suspect, have long since forgotten or put out of their minds. What with the ongoing turmoil in our country. But there's still American soldiers in Afghanistan, about 2,500 or so, and 2,400 Americans have been killed in that war over the last 20 years, and we've spent over trillions of dollars. So it's about time I say, yes, we ended the forever war. The forever war began, if you recall, 20 years ago after 9-11. President George W. Bush came to the decision that we needed to eliminate the terrorist threat that led to the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. The terrorists who engineered the attacks were hiding in plain sight in Afghanistan protected by the Taliban government. So the plan was to wage war in Afghanistan, drive out the terrorists, overturn the Taliban government, build a democracy, and then leave. That was the plan. I know I'm accused many times of being a cynical and jaded in my coverage of local news, 
So from my cynical and jaded perspective of a journalist who has good reason to be cynical and jaded, having watched Chicago politicians, most of them Democrats for all these years, do one thing after they say they're going to do something else. Allow me to say this. I don't really believe that that plan was the full plan in Afghanistan. No, the real plan, in my opinion, was to blow up some country and kill some people and extract some revenge for 9-11, which, by the way, we probably could have been prevented if we weren't looking the other way when it was being planned in plain sight. And then channel the anger and frustration and hurt that many Americans felt in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. It certainly didn't make any sense when shortly thereafter, George W. Bush announced the second front on the war on terror. And I have that in quotes, sending in troops to eradicate Saddam Hussein and overturn his regime. Saddam Hussein is dead. Osama bin Laden is dead. But man, have we as Americans paid a heavy price. I'm not just talking about the lives, the thousands of soldiers who died. I'm not just talking about the trillions of dollars that have otherwise been spent on dealing with the many, many problems we have in our own country. No, I'm talking about a larger psychic toll. Part of the divide in this country this day is between people who fervently supported the war and then came to realize that it may have been fought under fraudulent means. And on the other side, people who didn't fight the war pretended they believed in it. Think about it, folks. We all rise at football games and baseball games and basketball games to support the veterans. Thank you for your service, we say. But it was a service that so many people didn't want to provide on their own. I often believe that if we had a draft, there would have been no invasion in the first place. Because if we had had a draft and every able-bodied American man and maybe women, woman was going to be sent to the front, there would have been a really Massive protests in the streets of this country. That's the lesson that leaders in this country learned from Vietnam. If you don't have a draft, if you just have volunteer armies, limit the amount of protests to the wars that we wage. By the way, there were wars in the street. Excuse me. There were protests in the streets, uh, especially for the Iraqi invasion. In 2003, thousands of Chicagoans took to the streets and protest. Thousands spilled over in the Lakeshore Drive. They caused a traffic snarl in the middle of rush hour. This is like March of 2003. And when they exited at Chicago Avenue and walked back to the water tower, the police were waiting. Mass arrests ensued. All sorts of ordinary people thrown into police wagons, hauled off to jail, then tossed into cells and kept there waiting just to send the message. And the message was sent. There would be no dis- civil disobedience in Chicago. There would be no taking over Lakeshore Drive. There would be no massive protests against the war in Iraq. Mayor Daley wouldn't tolerate it. President George W. Bush appreciated the support he got from Mayor Daley. I can go on and on about this. After the presidential election of 2004, when Bush was reelected, defeating John Kerry, Mayor Daley held a press conference. And if you listen to that press conference, you will forget that Mayor Daley was a Democrat. No, he slammed Democrats for being out of touch. He blamed Democrats for John Kerry's loss. He said they were not religious enough. There was no rhetoric about a woke generation, but in many ways, what Daley had to say that day after the election was like something Bill Maher or Barack Obama or any other Dem would say to this day, denigrating Democrats who are, quote, too woke. George W. Bush appreciated the gesture. Fast forward two years, 2006, ladies and gentlemen, Richard M. Daley, our mayor, up to his eyeballs in federal investigations for various corruption scandals. The feds are pounding on his city hall door. George W. Bush turns 60, and where does he go to celebrate his birthday? 
why he flies to Chicago and joins Mayor Richard M. Daly for dinner at a restaurant in the South Loop. You cannot tell me that wasn't George Bush's way of sending a message to federal authorities. Stay away from my pal, Mayor Daly. The price we pay on many fronts for these forever wars in ways we never see and in ways that we keep on paying. We got a great show today, everybody. Cheryl Miller, Matt Ginsburg, mental health activists uh, from the south side of Chicago. And they'll be talking about the impact of closing those clinics all those years ago, the impact that we're feeling to this day. Got to be a better way of dealing with the insanity that all of us are feeling and facing in this country today. We see it. It's not just people who are living in neighborhoods where there's high crime. It's policemen who have to police those neighborhoods where there's high crime. It's like I, I sometimes feel everybody's on the brink of insanity and lunacy. But no, what do we do as a society? We make marijuana illegal, which, by the way, may cure some of these pains, these sucky <laughs> pains that people feel. And oh, <laughs> and we what? We close mental health clinics. That's how we deal with mental health problems in this country. Come on, folks. There's got to be a better way. Anyway, so... Um, Cheryl Miller and Matt Ginsburg will be on in a little while. We'll be talking about uh, the mental health situation in the city of Chicago, how we could do better. But before we do that, a mystery guest, a man who's very familiar uh, to listeners to this show. And uh, I will now introduce him, Vincent E. Normant. And he's the co-founder of Marijuana Hall of Fame. We're not here to talk about the Marijuana Hall of Fame, Vincent. Uh, we're going to be talking about something else. And... This has to do with uh, a video that you sent me. Uh, isn't that correct, Vincent? Uh, that you, first of all, welcome back to the show, Mystery Guest Vincent E. Norman. Hey, I should say having that. me back. You know, it's it's great to be back. And uh, this topic, uh, thank you for uh, touching on it. Uh, is important, and so I'll let you uh, do the lead in, and we'll talk about it. Yes. So when, here's what happened uh, in the aftermath of what went down in. Um, Brooklyn Center, the suburb outside of Minneapolis the other day where Dante Wright was shot, uh, killed. The, the police officer said she thought she was uh, leading with her taser, uh, but when it actually was a pistol, a gun, and shot him. Uh, my suspicions about that, but that's the situation. Uh, Vincent sent me a, um, a post that's been circulating on the Internet, and as soon as he sent it to me, I told him, D.L. Hewley will have this post. It will be on. You watch. It's Instagram because it's D.L. Hewley, the great comic, and Vincent E. Norman, roughly the same age, see the world kind of the same way in many ways. Uh, but it showed police dealing with a white man who they had pulled over to the side of the road, uh, and they had a much different attitude about it. Vincent, just describe what went down uh, in that video that you sent me. Uh, well, you know, uh, two police officers uh, pulled over a white gentleman, as you said. Uh, they noticed um, <clears throat> he was not being cooperative. They actually put his hands on uh, the steering wheel. He did not. He continued to yell at them. And then they noticed that <clears throat> he had a firearm, which uh, at that point, the officers drew their weapons and said, you have a firearm. Uh, is that registered? And blah, 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 blah. He started quoting some of the amendments and saying, it's my right to do whatever I want to. And I'm not putting my hands on the steering wheel. And please get the F away from me before I kill you. There were several times he threatened that police officer to kill them. And uh, as you see the video in Rose, you clearly understand that uh, these officers, if this was a uh, African-American or a Latino or uh, people of color, uh, this 
would have went way south and that man wouldn't be here today. And not to mention that uh, he, <laughs> in a funny way, this is really crazy. He demanded that the officer withdraw, take his gun and put it back in his holster, which the officer complied. Let me say that again. He told the police officer, put your weapon back into your holster. <laughs> and he complied. And he put it back in his holster. And until he realized when the young man, the suspect, grabbed his gun, he put it out again. And he told the officers, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to shut my door and I'm going to drive off and there's nothing you're going to do. And they said, no, you're not. And guess what? He shut the door and drove off. Not one round was shot. This could have been a mass murderer. This could have been, I mean, it was just really crazy the way this happened. And it was just sickening to my stomach when I think about the young man, the 20-year-old, that was murdered in plain sight. And a 27-year-old veteran officer said that she thought she had the taser. That was a lie. Well, you know, um, uh, this is not the first time. Uh, it really, in the aftermath of George Floyd, this has been put right in our face. Uh, the different attitudes and approaches that police uh, have in this country when they're dealing with a black man and when they're dealing with a white man or white people or black people. And it's an eye-opening experience uh, for white people if their eyes are open, uh, if they just don't intentionally close it because, and I'm, I'm kind of speaking for white America here when I say this, uh, Vincent, white people just, like, have a hard time believing that there's not some culpability on the part of a black person when they have an encounter with the well, police let me officer. Stop you there. Let me stop you there. What I hear is if they just would have applied, if they just would have just did what the officer said. Let me tell you something, white America. Look at the video and see that that white man in that pickup truck with a weapon complied. And then you tell me again about us not complying. If this is not a, and, and trust me, there are going to be some white folks that say, well, well, he was quoting his amendment rights. Well, he was doing this and that. But then, well, he went down the street and shot up a synagogue or went down to further down the street and shot up a school. I mean, think about it. We as black people are not given the same equal treatment. There have been several of us shot and we didn't even have a weapon, murdered. And we didn't even have a weapon. So, you know, uh, yesterday when I saw the video, it brought me to tears for the simple fact that, again, you know, we're dying in record numbers in the hand of police officers. You know, and uh, something has to change. Mm. And there's a video out right now that D. Hoo D. Uh, L. Hoogley po posted up uh, where they're showing a white man in a truck. I saw that, yeah. Yeah. And the police officer is on the truck. <laughs> in intimate danger. In intimate danger. And oh he's my God. driving away, hitting squad cars putting that police officer at risk. Again, not one shot was fired at him, yeah. a white male. This has to stop America. 
Yeah, well, I have two thoughts about it. And uh, I'm a big fan of D.L. Hewley, as you know. And if you want to see videos like this, just subscribe or follow D.L. Hewley on Instagram. The, for, for people who don't know, D.L. Hewley is a comedian uh, who's gotten very political as time has gone on. He may be as lefty as I am, if such a thing is possible. And uh, he he's always posting. He's very uh, he's up up to the moment, Vincent, with his yeah. posts. Of, like he has so many posts of it. Sometimes it's like white people just being ridiculous uh, in 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 their dealings with black people. Sometimes it's white officers being really obsequious to uh, white people who are rude to them. Sometimes it's black people. He he. He'll, He'll show black people being pretty stupid too. If Deal Hewley's got a lot of guts, he puts it out there if he thinks it's uh, to his point. And uh, so I knew that as soon as you sent me that video, I go, oh, I hadn't looked at Deal Hewley all day. I know he's going to, it was there. And then he posted the second one uh, today, which is in some ways is more unbelievable than the one that. It is when you think about it. I mean, because there's a police officer, clearly. We have had police officers shoot black men, unarmed men, because they said that it looked like he was trying to run me over. <laughs> Watch this video, folks. This video of the Minnesota uh, white male. <laughs> He's doing more than trying to run a police over. You know, and, and, and it's crazy. So uh, you're right. Uh, D. Hel Hughley is uh, transparent, straight to the point. I support him, you know, and like I said, he keeps it balanced. You know, he's not just pointing fingers at white men. If we do something stupid and crazy, he put it out there as well. He does. So, you know, it's all about, you know, right is right, wrong is wrong. And yeah. he's definitely transparent about it. And uh, I mean, just like I said, again, those two videos, white America, if you don't understand what black folks go through now, you need to really check yourself. All right. All right now, uh, Vince, I have this is the question I was leading up to. I'll ask you this question. I don't know if I asked you this uh, off the mic, but I'm asking you now. When I watch uh, D.L. Hewley's videos that he posts, and I think about uh, the videos from January 6th, where you see police officers uh, treating uh, white people in cars or protesters or whatever uh, with more deference than uh, in kindness uh, or concern or restraint. I'm trying to think of all the words that apply. Then they would treat black people. I got two thoughts. On one hand, like if you read the comments that a lot of black people put on D.L. Hewley's posts, you get the sense that their attitude is, why don't you treat these white people like you treat black people? I'll flip it. Get your thoughts on this. Why don't you treat black people the way you treat the white people? In other words, maybe the way that restraint that they're showing, as difficult and challenging as it may be for a police officer, is an admirable quality. That it's perhaps the way that you deal with these highly charged emotional situations that could turn violent. But that maybe should be the protocol that should be followed across the board, as opposed to treating white people with the same brutality as they treat black people. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in the, uh, the wheelhouse of, you know, everybody should have to be treated with dignity. And respect everybody. So, 
you know, when I see um, us being treated, meaning black people being treated disrespectful, um, it, it it's a challenge of not me saying that, well, treat the white people the same. No, mm-hmm. no. Stop treating us in that way, period. You know, just point blank. We are human beings just like you are. We want the same respect, demand the same respect that you guys, women, uh, Caucasians, ask for, demand. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, it's it's not about, you know, we'll do it to them. No, get the off of, you know, man, I almost says, and I excuse myself for that. <laughs> like, um, well, it's a podcast. You know, but hey, you know, then hell yeah, it's the podcast. Leave us the fuck alone. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much. Uh, Vincent, before I let you go, uh, I always point this out. Vincent uh, is a Marine. Uh, and um, so I hope op- op- that's simplify that we, when you said that, I'm going to say this real quick. A man in uniform mm-hmm. in Virginia for him, that, 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 that tells it right there. White America, wake up. No, that's the man that pepper sprayed. Uh, he was in uniform and uh, it's, I'd say it it's an unbelievable story, it except it's not unbelievable. Right. It doesn't matter what we have on, <clears throat> what we are doing. <clears throat> we are looked at as the enemy of this USA. We are treated differently and, you know, it has to stop. Yeah. You know, because uh, something's going to happen here. So, uh, again, you know, I'm telling my white friends, share the videos, have a conversation. You know, enough is enough. So I'm leaving that that Ben. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. I was, um, I was going to ask you your thoughts at the end of the Afghanistan war. Maybe we'll have that conversation uh, another time because that's a, a hell of a conversation just to drop on you at the end. But uh, headline into paper, I talked about it before you came on, is time to end the forever war. I know you were you served before uh, Afghanistan, um, but you must have some general thoughts, uh, Vincent, before we let you go. You're going to drop it on me anyway, Vin. Yeah, maybe we'll hold it off for you. No, I think that uh, our men and women should not be over, over their period. Uh, I mean, it's, we're in harm's way. That's a country that doesn't like us. They don't really want us to be there anyway. And uh, we know that that's, you know, pretty much terrorist group. So we're putting uh, the lives of our people over there. And, this, and that should never be happening. So the fact that they want to whip, withdraw the troops, that should have happened a long time ago. Yeah. That should have happened a long time ago. All right, Vincent E. Norman, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. As soon as you sent me that text uh, or that uh, video, I, I had to bring you on. I knew I had to bring you on. Next time we'll come on, we'll give some updates about the Marijuana Hall of Fame. Once again, I'll twist your arm before I leave. Talk about some basketball, too. Oh, yeah, I'm talking about my ball. Let's not, my beloved Bulls are so bad. I, I can't even I, – I need some marijuana to get through the my beloved Bulls in this season. Uh, but we'll talk basketball and uh, Marijuana Hall of Fame and all kinds of issues today. Uh, Vincent E. Norman, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. All right. Yes, sir. You take it easy. All right. Uh, very good. We're going to take a break. When we return, Cheryl Miller and Matt Ginsburg.
mental health activist from the city of Chicago will join us. So we'll take this break and be right back. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, T-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971 all right everybody commercial break over welcome back to the ben jarofsky show live from his attic and jarofsky here uh matt ginsburg is about to join us a sharon miller has joined us and before uh, i bring a sharon miller and uh, matt ginsburg on uh let me just talk a little bit about this issue it's uh, one that uh, I've been writing about for about 10 years, I want to say. And time flies uh, when you're not having fun. Anyway, uh, it, um, and, uh, it goes back to the early days of the Rahm Emanuel uh, administration. Uh, Matt Ginsburg has joined us. So we have, I love it when my guests join me. Matt Ginsburg is here. Cheryl Miller is here. So all is well. Uh, Matt, I was just starting with the introduction before uh, you came on. Uh, this my coverage of the story about 10 years old. And the reason I cover this story is because of this gentleman, Matt Ginsburg. I'm going to give him a shout out. He probably doesn't want it, but I'm going to give it to him anyway. And in about <laughs> 2011, I think it was Cheryl Miller. I don't think you've ever heard this story before. I started getting a phone call from someone I never heard of before. A young man named Matthew Ginsburg. And he would call me day and night. Ben, you got to write about this mental health clinics that Mayor Rahm is closing. Ben, this is a really important story. I'm like, young man, I'm a very important journalist in the city of Chicago. I don't just let anybody tell me what to write about, Matt Ginsburg. Well, lo and behold, sometimes the young lead the old because this man, Cheryl Miller, was right. This was an important story. And Mayor Rahm did send a message, Cheryl Miller, about how cold-hearted we were as a people in the city of Chicago and how dumb we were. I'm just going to throw this out there, Cheryl Miller and Matt Ginsburg, because you should be investing in mental health clinics. Everybody's losing their freaking minds. Everybody. It's not just poor people in high-crime neighborhoods, not police, not just police. Even podcast show hosts and reader writers can barely hang on. That's right. So anyway, Matt Ginsburg, we'll start with you. Uh, You've just, uh, you did a great, in my opinion, a public service. I've never said this to you publicly, bugging me so many times way back when in 2011 to write the stories. Glad I wrote the stories. Glad the issue is still out there. Um, So why don't we go back in time, uh, Matt Ginsburg, and talk a little bit about what Mayor Rahm did and what he set off in, I think it was 2011, his first budget, when he closed those uh, six mental health clinics. Go ahead, Matt, take it away. Yeah, that's right. It was the 2011 budget and the closures happened in 2012. And, you know, we knew he was going to come in swinging. This is a man that's deeply invested in cuts and privatization is the way forward for government. And uh, when they're doing that, they look for the low hanging fruit. And he thought that folks suffering with mental health issues were 
not going to raise a fuss and would be easy to get out of his way. Even better that these clinics often resided in gentrifying neighborhoods and were staffed by unionized uh, employees. And all of those were on his, put them on his chopping block. So we had tried to get his ear from the minute he was a candidate. We had written letters, petitions, showed up with a busload of folks at his campaign office to try to talk to him and nothing, nothing, nothing. Finally ended up uh, sitting in, in city hall on the day of the budget vote they closed off access to the bathrooms and eventually forced us out of there and kept on going until it uh, came to the point where the folks directly impacted by this folks, many of whom you had a chance to meet because you finally picked up my phone calls uh, <laughs> um, uh, said, you know what, we've got nothing left to us. We're going to take our therapist and that's a lifeline for us. These clinics being able to walk to this place in my neighborhood where people know me, where they know what I'm dealing with, where they know, you know, when I'm acting out, why I'm acting out, where I know I'm not going to get shot where I know I'm not going to get uh, incarcerated, where I know I'm going to have somebody to listen to me and understand me and walk me through things and get me back stable again, that's that's life or death situation for me, as ended up, unfortunately, uh, playing out in all too real ways. And so they said, nothing's left to us except for to occupy this clinic. And uh, we took over one of the clinics, sat in with enough food there for for 30 days if we needed to, whatever it would take to get this man to come out and just look in the faces of those who would be affected by the closure of these clinics before he did it. Uh, unfortunately, all he sent was a bunch of police and SWAT cars and the rest is history. Luckily though, because of folks like you and of course, and like Cheryl, your other guest today and uh, many others, uh, this issue has not gone away. It plagued him and dogged him through the rest of his campaign. Uh, as one of the one of the top three, I like to think of the issues that tarnished his rep and made him step aside. And, uh, and we thought maybe we'd get a little bit of relief coming in with a new administration who was making all kinds of promises. I'm sure we'll get to that in a bit here, but uh, so far, no. So far, those clo- those clinics remain shuttered. People remain without services. People remain in these cycles of crisis. Some of the same fighters from back then are around and still fighting. Some of them have passed away like they told Rom to his face they would if he closed their clinics. Uh, if I had a guess, you just mentioned the top three clinics, uh, top three, top three uh, uh, incidents of Rom's uh, uh, first term that tarnished his reputation. I would say closing the clinics, uh, closing the schools, uh, and McDonald's. McDonald. Yeah, yeah, I would. That's, I, right. that's uh, I would say that's accurate. All right. Before we bring Cheryl on, I just have to talk about this point. This is the point that really blew my mind. I I still haven't got over this. I would say, oh, how you know, I've been around forever. I know everything about Chicago <laughs> politics. But this one, even now and then, ladies and gentlemen, something happened in Chicago. It's like you are such a twisted, weird city, Chicago. Cheryl Miller, get ready. You're gonna come on because you're a lifelong Chicago. You're gonna have to defend the city you live in. They, this is Chicago's reaction so you have a bunch of protesters showing up with at mayor rob's city hall office begging to meet with him he will dart out the back doors rather than meet with them he doesn't want to confront the real life human consequences of his budget cuts that he got through the city council by the way 50 to nothing because the aldermen were so worried about the ward remap that was coming up they voted for his budget clinic closings and all. So this is what's going on. He's trying to pretend as though it doesn't exist. Then, as Matt said, there's these protests at the Woodlawn Clinic on the south side of Chicago, the old Woodlawn Clinic. So what does Mayor Rahm do? How does the city of Chicago respond? They send in two undercover cops. This is the part that always blows my mind. This is, it doesn't get, people go, oh, Ben, you're cynical. 
I'm cynical. I'm the one who responded to protests over mental health clinics by sending in two undercover cops to listen to Matt Ginsburg's conversations and other people <laughs> like Matt Ginsburg and write up reports. Uh, plus, Matt Ginsburg says the man has to go. It's like, let's get a case against Matt Ginsburg. This is policing, folks. Your law enforcement dollars were spent on two undercover cops listening to Matt Ginsburg talk about how much he can't stand Rom. Hell, you could just listen to the Ben Jarofsky show and hear that. <laughs> you don't have to pay money to cops. That's right. That's Talk right. about it, Matt. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, it wasn't just the two undercovers. They had they had cars stationed at every single one of the 12 clinics the whole for months on end there. They had the heavy-handed response to the initial sit-in at the clinic. And then, yeah, like you said, they sent it. It was actually, it was even more sick and twisted, if that's possible, than the way you set me up for it here. Because they these people came in and to ingratiate themselves with us. Mm-hmm. Their names were mowing gloves, they said. They said they were cousins. And they told a story that they literally sobbed tears during uh, where they said that their uncle had committed suicide, and that's what had brought them to this to this uh, to this issue. So you see a, a crowd full of hundreds of people suffering, about to lose their services, telling their true stories of being on the brink of all kinds of things, self harm, loss, all of the things, and then you make yourself try to bring buy trust with those people by telling a fake story, and then it turns out the whole time you're there to to what to do what exactly to do what to hear us tell about why we shouldn't close the clinics i spent yeah. a night one one night when uh when i first suspected they might be undercover police officers was we every time we were setting up for a civil disobedience we were very intentional about who was going to be involved in that we would tell our supporters there please move to the sidewalk that we're going to be defying a police order to get off this lot because the police had Ron was obsessed with us not camping on this empty lot. Uh, and so the police would get occasional orders to clear us off of there. And we wanted to make sure that the people that were speaking to the media that were there, that were part of this, were people affected by the issue were close to them and that were going to stay on point. And these people popped in at the last minute, threw themselves in front of the cops to make sure they got arrested with us. They got arrested. These two cops got arrested with us by their fellow cops. And I spent a night handcuffed to the guy who wanted to who spent the whole night trying to get me to say we were going to do something wild and crazy. You know, I said the wild and crazy stuff is, has already been done. It's closing this clinic. That's what's crazy. Um, and luckily I didn't fall for the bait. Unfortunately, five other young men who had showed up from out of town and were there supporting us in the, cause it tied into the NATO protest coming up, yeah. did take the bait and, and ended up paying some severe consequences. Yeah. So, uh, that, yes, that's a very good riff. That's exactly the background, but yeah, they were trying to set you up. All right. I'll bring on Cheryl Miller and, uh, uh Cheryl, uh, I'm not blaming you just because you come from Chicago, uh, born and raised in the city from uh, Hyde Park area. But I have to ask you this. When you when you hear the stories uh, that Matt and I were just talking about and you think about how the city has responded and reacted uh, to mental health activists who were protesting uh, to reopen the clinics and you see just the general policy uh, that the city has in regards to mental health. Like you, you treat it like it's some kind of weird, bizarre infliction that only weird, bizarre people have. And so we don't have to deal with it across the board. What is Is it something unique about Chicago, in your humble opinion, that has this kind of violent attitude uh, to mental health activists? Or do you think it's indicative of something larger than Chicago uh, in society in general? Your general thoughts on this. Go ahead, Cheryl. I think it's both, but I think Chicago's brings things to a whole new level. And, and, um, and I always, and I, and I always say, 
I think I'm a pretty cynical person, but I will never be cynical enough for Chicago because people still manage to make me say, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, you think this is the city that tolerated and ignored torture, um, official torture, things that um, would actually, you know, um, Geneva, things that are written and abolished in the Geneva Code <laughs> against torture. This city tolerated and, and, um, and, and, and elected Amanda Mayer several times as, 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 as a, you know, um, uh, you, you know, things like taking out the, the park benches and then putting up, you know, benches with statues on and saying it's illegal to sit on them because it's art. They almost arrested my 70-year-old mother at the time for sitting on a bench that used to be a park bench in front of the cultural center. Then they made it an art piece and said you can't. And, and they had a police officer sitting there full time to make sure nobody sat on the art piece that looked like a bench. So, so then, so, but I have to say I was still shocked when the when Rahm Emanuel went in and, and, and closed the clinic. And particularly when you think the money he spent on policing, probably half of that would have paid for keeping the clinics open. Yeah. You know, like all of that money he spent. And and then at the same time he was it closed the clinics. I forget, was it like two million dollars a year for all of them to keep them open? He was putting in a boat harbor at 31st Street that ended up costing $100 million. You know, he's putting, he's doing the flyover on Lakeshore Drive, so by $95 million. Yeah. But somehow couldn't find the money um, to keep, didn't want to find, it wasn't that he couldn't find, he didn't want to keep it. I think, you know, like Matt said, he didn't want to keep it down. And I was so outraged. I was driving a cab at the time. And every passenger for a couple of weeks who got in my cab, I complained. about. And I said, call somebody. And then I said, and if you work downtown, you know, you're just a your corporate person working downtown, then what you need to do is, because I said, Ramos, you know, talk to, talk to your folks. Make us think. Because Ron only respects the corporate world. So... Let your corporate folks say um, this. But I I was just, yeah, people got an earful for me. And then um, a couple of years later when I was um, campaigning, um, trying to help campaign against Rom, and I would go and talk to um, cab drivers and tell them, make sure you talk about the school's closings and the closing of the mental health clinics and what that meant. To all your passengers, and I actually finally, I, I, I didn't know if it was happening or not, but I did have a friend of mine call me, and she said that a friend of hers who took a lot of cabs told her every single cab she'd gotten in that day, they wanted to talk about the closing of the mental health clinics and the, and the public schools, so I was like, yay! But I had no idea that, you know, nine years later, I, I would be working for STOP, and one of my official job duties is to, again, organize getting those clinics reopened or re the services reestablished if the 
actual physical plant is no longer available. All right, we'll get into uh, uh, Lori Lightfoot's uh, policy on this matter uh, in a bit. But uh, Cheryl, you said something, and I want to follow up with you, get your thoughts on this. And maybe when you're done, Matt may want to weigh in as well. And you were talking about how when you were driving a cab, uh, you would implore, beg, plead with your uh, passengers uh, to use whatever influence or contact they have with corporate Chicago uh, to try to put some pressure on Mayor Rahm, because you're absolutely correct. We've seen the emails that Rahm had. We, we've foiled those emails and, and then looked at his the people he met with. So you're absolutely correct when you say he had a profound and deep and abiding love for corporate Chicago, for rich people in general. So you're absolutely correct. I'm struck. When you said that, it triggered something in my head. Follow me in this. I've been following from afar. We're talking about it in the show a lot. What's going on in Georgia? And in Georgia, the Republicans uh, who run the state house and are the governor are changing the election laws in order to make it more cumbersome or difficult uh, or challenging for Democrats, particularly black people, uh, to vote. Uh, their strategy, follow me in this, Cheryl Miller, their strategy is not to woo black people with their ideas to convince them to go from the Democrat to the Republican Party, but just to make it harder and more difficult for them to vote. Fewer than the vote, Republicans can still win as the party of white supremacists. That's their freaking strategy, Cheryl, okay? Corporate America has been pressured, I mean, to take a stand against it. So my question to you is, how come in Chicago, we never see corporate Chicago take a stand against anything powerful mayors do? You close 50 schools, corporate Chicago's like, well, you know, they got a good point. A lot of, uh, it's underfunding. There's not a lot of people in the classroom. You know what I mean? You spend millions of dollars downtown that are supposed to be spent in neighborhoods. Corporate Chicago's like, oh, yeah, that's called economic development, Ben. You know, you close clinics. They go, well, there's a more prudent, sophisticated way to do this. How come corporate Chicago in, in, in the city of Chicago, Cheryl Miller, is never where you need them on the front lines? Go ahead. Help me out there. Because corporate Chicago, once um, wants the city to not have poor black people and poor brown people, for that matter, poor people at all, in it, the you know, like the fantasy. I, I drove somebody who was talking about he he was one of the master planners for um, you know the South Loop area and the the West Loop area, uh, which is now what we're calling South Loop and West Loop. But you know this this getting rid of there's you know this idea of we really just want. Okay, there, there used to be a joke and a Hyde Park joke. It's a horrible joke. But it was basically everybody um, in Hyde Park, black and white, Jewish or Gentile, all stood together united against the poor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that's what, I mean, we can come together in Chicago, but we really don't, we really, I mean, all time, you know, the diversity that people are get excited about in Chicago is, okay, you can all look a little, have different shades, but we really want your green to, to be okay. You know, and it was like when they closed, I was, um, when, you know, when Daly closed all of those, um, uh, the, 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 um, the affordable housing and CHA, 
when mm-hmm. he, they were giving people vouchers to Algin, Petroliet. <laughs> yeah. You know, they and literally would t- said we will. They would. I, I was driving people, and they said, "Oh yeah, they're gonna um that we got a voucher to, that we can take out to the suburbs. They're gonna pay for our moving and buy us a washer and dryer unit." Yeah. I mean, that's what they did to clear out um, that um, that kind of east part of Kenwood. Sure, I'll go one step further. It wasn't just Elgin. My uh, my shock in 2008, I went to help my uh, oldest daughter. She was working uh, campaigning for Barack Obama in Iowa City. I went down to Iowa City. There's black people from Cabrini Green. I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you doing here? They're oh, like, yeah. what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you know, like they got on a Greyhound bus and went to. I'm not making this up, Cheryl Miller. They got on a Greyhound bus, went to Iowa City, and settled in Iowa City, and. You know, and one guy actually, uh, a nice gentleman uh, from Cabrini Green, he opened up a, um, uh, a barbecue place in Iowa City. He had a business set up there. So I know what you're saying is true. The plan for transformation was to transform Chicago by moving poor people. Absolutely correct. But it wasn't just, I just had to throw that in. It wasn't just Elgin. It was, I, they got down to Iowa City. Matt Ginsburg, your thoughts on uh, corporate Chicago and how come they you, you, we can't get them to speak up? Uh, why weren't they joining your uh, protest? <laughs> you know, you're gonna you're gonna bring out the lefty in me here, but there's there's different sections of capital. There's a section of capital that was the Trump coalition and and folks, and they're very much with the the voter suppression stuff in Georgia. They're not boycotting anything. The military contractors, the extractive industry, the the oil titans, etc. Right, and they think that the the, the, the way forward is to suppress the, everybody who's not them. And then there's another section of capital that's Coca-Cola and MLB and whoever else it is that, that says, no, no, we're in a new age. We can make money off of these people and, and we need to integrate them into the system, et cetera, right? And so they're going to make a big stand to make it look like they are on the side of these people they hope to bring into their consumer fold in Georgia. But in Chicago, where they're at, they've already, you know, that, that in Chicago, they're going to exercise their class interests to try to make sure that they're going to turn the profit the way they best know how. And what that means is clearing folks off of the land in order to make way for big real estate developments. And that involves all of the things we've already touched on closure of public housing, shutting down mental health clinics, shutting down schools, privatization, et cetera. So, you know, they're going to do it. It's not that in Chicago, there's not the equivalent of this sort of fake posturing grandstanding that they're on the side of the people. There's people that will come in from the corporate sector and say, Oh, we're going to, because we are so concerned, about people with mental health issues we're going to make this pittance of a donation to x y or z private provider who just happens to be the same private provider working with the city to help facilitate a closing of a city mental health clinic after having for decades dumped all of its uninsured patients on those same city clinics so it's it's there you know it happens the posturing happens at the end of the day though their actions whether they're in georgia or in chicago are determined on what's going to maximize their profit and what their vision of the best way to maintain control to do that is Man, you do sound like a lefty, Matt. Uh, and uh, God bless you. All right. Uh, so let's update things. Uh, I will start with you, Matt, with Lori Lightfoot. I was hoping, I'm a confession, I voted for Lori Lightfoot. I make this confession all the time in my interviews. Cheryl is shaking, shaking her head and laughing at me. Uh, <laughs> so I voted for her. Uh, and in part, she talked about reopening the clinics. That's one of the things she talked about and uh, breaking away from ROMs legacy and the clinics have not been reopened. Uh, and in fact, I was a little uh, disappointed to put it mildly to hear the health commissioner, or 
officials of the Lori Lightfoot's administration, uh, echoing some of the same rhetoric I heard from Mayor Rahm's uh, health commissioners and health officials. And that is somehow or other, uh, even though clinics have been closed, there's more mental health service in the city. <laughs> Chicagoans, you believe anything anybody tells you. We're going to close clinics, but then don't follow me on this. There's going to be more mental health. Whoa, I'm a Chicagoan. I believe that. Uh, so, Matt, talk a little bit about Lori Lightfoot, the mental health clinic situation uh, with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Yeah, I mean, essentially what the, the long and short of it is, is uh, she has she lied to the people. She made a promise and she has reneged on it. She came in and, and the mechanics of how that happened is that she came in, she surrounded herself with an advisory council completely composed of folks in the private sector who stood to gain uh, from having further clinic shutdowns and privatizations and who all told her, well, we've got a great solution for you. It's to give us the money. <laughs> right? And uh, those folks, you know, were folks in high echelons of society with a lot of social capital and folks that she considered politically important to her much more so than folks that she thought had gone away long ago. Well, I don't have to worry. Her advisors also said, don't worry about those mental health movement people. We rom crushed them for us. So you can just give us the money and we'll, we'll all be happy and move forward. And, you know, we haven't gone away. And we've said to her, just like we said during the campaign, you know, you need to listen to people directly affected by this. You need to talk, look at your own city clinics. You need to look at doing what you said you were going to do and investing in the public sector. It's not to say that there's not a role for private clinics, private providers. It's, it's great to have a whole diversity of things in the, the ecosystem to provide services. But at the end of the day, the only entity that's going to have a mission to serve those who are underserved, the, the public, that responds to the public, that's accountable to the public, is going to be the public sector, the, the, those public mental health clinics. It's like, you know, I, I use the equivalent of what Lori Lightfoot did is she, is she said during her campaign, I am going to invest in the parks, right? We're going to insert parks for mental health clinics. I'm going to invest in the parks. And then she came in and she put a bunch of money into Six Flags and said, I decided that there's a better park than the parks that we got in Chicago because it's got all these rides on it. And so we're, we're all better off. That's fine and great if you can make the trip up to Six Flags and pay the entrance fee. But if you can't pay an entrance fee, if you can't make a trip, you need Grant Park, Douglas Park, Washington Park. You need the Woodlawn Clinic, the Auburn Gresham Clinic, the Back of the Yards Clinic. That is a great riff, Matt. Uh, I really appreciate that. Cheryl, uh, why is it that the city, in your humble opinion, to pick up on what Matt said, so opposed to reopening these actual public clinics with public employees who make, by the way, let me just make the economic development argument. They get paid a pretty good penny. They have to live in the city of Chicago because they're Chicago uh, employees. So their uh, taxes will be paid in Chicago. You can make the economic development argument every bit as much by opening up a clinic as you can by giving a TIF deal to some developer downtown. You can make the economic. But why is there this opposition? We saw it with Rom. And now Lori Lightfoot won't reopen the clinics either. In your humble opinion, Chair Miller, why do they shy away from reopening the clinics and move toward what Matt is talking about, like giving you a voucher or something to go to a private, not even a voucher, but uh, putting an emphasis on private services? What's your thoughts, Cheryl? Well, I think it's because um, we keep electing people who don't actually believe in good government and good governance. Um, and and I think the last mayor that we had that actually believed in and in the what government should mean to people and what people should mean to the government was Harold Washington. You know, Daly um, privatized like one of the first things 
things that he did. And, and I know, you know, he, he privatized all of the traffic cops or, or switched them and all of the employees at, um, at O'Hare and, and everybody's followed it since then. And, you know, not, and the, and the thing that the difference that that makes is that if you have a traffic cop writing a traffic ticket, you have somebody who's not armed, <laughs> who isn't, you know, coming in heavy, you know, who's like, now as a cab driver, I was not necessarily fond of them, <laughs> but I was never worried about getting killed on a traffic, during a traffic stop. You know, um, and and part of it is those same people, those same entities that the private contracts are going to um, are people who are making the campaign donations. And it's, you know, so they, so it's, it, you know, it's the, it's the snake eating its tail type thing. And, um, you know, and we, you know, we say the same things with, closing down public schools and then creating um, charter school contracts. Um, and now charter school teachers are trying to organize because it's, it's a raw deal. It's, but when, but it's really just this dismantling of, of, um, of a public safety network, you know, probably started with Reagan really actively and viciously, but I was, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember Reagan's presidency. I wasn't paying attention to a lot of the particulars, <laughs> you know. I mean? But um, yeah, I was paying attention to a, a few of the particulars. But I, I think that's, I think that's it. And I, and I think that um, now I, unlike you, Ben, knew better. And I voted for so I figured that she actually, you know, has has her faults. Yes, you know, but um, I actually thought she was sincere in what she said, and and that she actually did believe. You know, if you if you if you believe in in, in good government and you're in and you're gov you're you're in governance. And you make mistakes that, and you do something that's a problem. That's one thing. But when you don't believe in it at all, and you just want to tear down the system, um, then so that everybody can make a profit. It's you know, it's kind of like when the Soviet Union fell and the treasury got raided. You know, <laughs> and that's what that's what they're all hoping to do is to raid the treasury, or at least you know, carry the water for, for the, the Raiders. Uh, by the way, you took me back to the eighties with your reference to the Soviet union and your reference to the uh, Ronald Reagan administration I had flashbacks. I think I saw you Cheryl Miller hanging out at a record store on 53rd street or something like that back in the Reagan. <laughs> really um, so uh, chances are, that's, what I was <laughs> that's what you were doing. Uh, all right. So Matt, give us some hope for the future here in Chicago uh, right now uh, we're in a situation where slowly, I think, I hope fingers crossed coming out 
uh, from the worst part of the, the, the shutdown uh, a result of the pandemic, money will be flowing into the city of Chicago from the feds for uh, the general for COVID relief and infrastructure. Infrastructure is a huge word in this case. It covers a lot of different needs. Um, so there will be money. There will be money in the city of Chicago. A lot of it will be federal money. Do you sense that there will be a movement that will force uh, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, and the city council to reopen some of these clinics, particularly in the face of all the trauma that we see every freaking day in the city of Chicago? And by the way, I just have to say, it's not just uh, P. I, I'll repeat what I said. Police officers are clearly feeling a trauma. You know what I'm saying? It's not just a poor people in Woodlawn or Englewood or host of the podcast show like myself. Uh, it's across the board. So do you see any hope, Matt Ginsburg, that uh, we will have a movement to reopen these clinics? I'm profoundly hopeful, Ben. I've never I've never lost hope. I've had moments uh, that I've been sad that I've grieved is we've lost people as we, you know, the losses are real. uh, And it's important to recognize that our, our moments of, of hopelessness are also grounded in a reality we're living through. But what makes me profoundly hopeful is the fact that the, is the fight back is the, is the people that continue to organize around this is the fact that, you know, when when I went the other day, Cheryl invited me down to, to the Woodlawn clinic again, to commemorate the nine year anniversary of us occupying that clinic and to do a press conference calling on mayor Lightfoot to, to uh, honor her promises and to also connect that to the effort to, to have uh, money taken from the police and from policing folks with mental illness and put into a non-police trauma response to have social workers response to these things. And, and when I got down there for that press conference and, and walked up, it was like, a, it was my flashback to my eighties. It wasn't the eighties, but my flashback to nine years ago when we were in front of that clinic again with, with some of the same people that, you know, David, uh, one of them in particular that, that really made me uh, just tear up as soon as I saw him as uh, a man named David who lives two blocks from the clinic and was actually the first one that convinced me. He was, he was to me when I was to you, Ben, in, in, in emphasizing the importance of this issue. And we, after a, a hard f- fight against the conversion of the subsidized units that he and others on Kimbrick Avenue live in to condos where we won, he said, you know, but I'm thinking I, I may still have to move because they're moving my clinic. They're moving my counselor. I'm not stable without that clinic right there. And, uh, and that was what woke me up to, ah, you can't just knock on doors to save housing. Part of stopping displacement is stopping the closure of these services. Well, David's never gone away. David, even when we packed up after 50 some arrests that summer and, and, and said, you know, let's lick our wounds and think about what's next. David kept on going back to the clinic in a one man occupation, sitting in, sitting inside of that lobby, no matter who else was there or when nobody was there holding court with, with the people as the cleaning staff as they came came in or his peers and and you know who was sitting in front of that clinic when I went down to that press conference that Cheryl invited me to David was still there Cowboy was still there uh, 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 so many people Horace was still there people that I've seen go through crisis who've lived in in their own flesh and blood through the crisis uh, of having to be shuffled from provider to provider who closed their doors that's another part of the story is that these same private providers that say they're the solution to everything keep on having to close their doors because they run out of their funding right and then our 
our folks are thrown into crisis. But despite that crisis, those people were back there. They were in front of that clinic, raising their voices, clear as day and continuing the struggle. And they were accompanied by a whole new generation of folks that have come on. I'm inspired every time I see these Black Lives Matters, defund the police protests that are going on because there's a whole other generation. This Gen Z is not playing, as if, you <laughs> if you haven't noticed. And they've picked up the call to reopen these mental health clinics and they've connected it directly to the fight to say something really basic and really clear that flies in the face of everything corporate Chicago is about, which is that, which is that people's lives matter. Black lives matter. And if they matter, then that means investing in their communities. That means reopening these clinics. And so I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm not hopeful that Lori Lightfoot's going to do the right thing. I am hopeful that our movements are going to force the right thing to happen, either by getting her and, and her cronies to do the right thing or by getting them out of office next time around. All right. Uh, Cheryl, we'll close with you making a, a pitch to Lori Lightfoot. I'm sure she's listening to the show right now. She's a huge fan of Matt Ginsburg. And uh, so uh, if you could make a pitch, Matt, I have to ask you, though, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, among the people who showed up for uh, the press conference for the nine year uh, reunion, if you will, was, were mowing gloves there? I was so sorry. I was so sad to see they weren't there. I, want, I, I wanted to give them a pat on the back and a punch in the face, but they weren't there. I wouldn't be surprised if there were other uh, underground police operatives there, uh, if not mowing gloves. All right, we'll close. Uh, Cheryl, give it a, a pitch to Lori Lightfoot uh, why this is so important uh, to reopen some of the clinics, uh, particularly now we have an influx of federal money coming into the city of Chicago. Go ahead. It's time to rebuild the city infrastructure the mental health infrastructure owned by the city, governed by the city, and with um, oversight by community. Um, you know, in my mind, saying that, um, oh, it, it would be as if your house and your roof was falling down and your porch was all wonky and you needed your plumbing redone and you had the money to do it, but instead, you gave the money to your neighbor to redecorate their house and buy new furniture if they promised to let you come and shower at their house. It makes no sense. We have to build. And this, and the, the clinics stabilize neighborhoods, people knowing where people have a place to go. We, um, we, we are in need of grief counseling services. We're in need of a whole lot having a place where somebody can go ask a question to somebody um, is just very important. And it's really important that we make Chicago a city for Chicagoans. All right, Cheryl. Uh, Matt, before you go, uh, give folks, if they want to get involved, if they want more information, if they want to join the protests, uh, where do they go? Where can they sign up? Well, I would point them to first to stopchicago.org or the Southside Together Organizing for Powers Facebook page. Um, the, the or they can look up the Treatment Not Trauma Coalition that's doing work around this. It's the or the Collaborative for Community Wellness, um, United Working Families. There's a number of organizations. Join if you want to support. Join your local organization and ask them what they're doing to be part of this coalition to reopen these mental health clinics. Very good. All right, Matt, thank you so much uh, for coming on. And thank you so much for all those pestering phone calls uh, 10 years ago. And uh, Cheryl Miller, uh, thanks, thank you as well. For taking time, come on my show. Appreciate it for both of you.
Thank you. All right. That's Cheryl Miller and uh, Matt Ginsburg. And uh, that's the end of today's show. I want to give a shout out to uh, those two fine people. And it's a very important cause, folks. And it's, again, I can't repeat this enough. We were so bizarre in this country and the attitude toward mental health. Uh, I've said this before. uh, When when there's a mass shooting, Republicans in general, I remember Donald Trump saying this uh, many times when there was a mass shooting. You go, well, it's, it's not the guns, it's the mental health. And then nobody ever invests in the mental health. They just say that, well, it's the mental health. We need more mental health. And then the city of Chicago, they come in and they shut those clinics. And I, I it just, they shut the clinics in the midst of a crime surge. Like people are shooting each other. He's in the city of Chicago, crimes going up. Mayor Rahm is suddenly coming face to face with being with what it means to be mayor of Chicago. I guess he thought he was just going to cut, cut a bunch of ribbons and give out checks to rich people and build his brand and move on to another office. And all of a sudden he's coming face to face with the fact that there's murder in Chicago. There's carnage in Chicago. There's crime in Chicago. He closed the clinics. It's like, we never, we never seem like to connect the dots. So, uh, and then I see that, you know, among police officers, there's articles in the paper all the time about suicides, police suicides, and trauma, the impact, the mental impact. We just don't want to recognize it. So um, I'm going to give a shout out one more time to Matt Ginsburg for turning me on to this issue many years ago, making me realize that people were struggling, not just me. It was a lot of people uh, in the city of Chicago. So um, I hope the mayor listens to Matt Ginsburg and Cheryl Miller and the other activists and reopen some of these clinics. All right. I also want to thank Vincent E. Normant, uh, the co-founder of Marijuana Hall of Fame. Today's mystery guest, kind of like doing the mystery guest thing uh, this week while Dennis was in Alton and uh, coming in talking about um, uh, just different ways that police respond uh, to motorists on traffic stops, black motors and white motors. And of course, thank the man. The myth, the legend, the pride of joy in Alton, Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. That would be the man that uh, Cheryl and Matt both agree uh, is called Dr. D. Dr. D, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash, and go spend it at some bar in your hometown of Alton. See you tomorrow, everybody. Not going to a bar during a pandemic. Remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y, or wherever else you download podcasts. You can send us an email, Show at gmail.com. You can reach us online at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. And you can call us, 708-658-4788. 708-658-4788. Call us. We're not going to answer, but you can leave us a voicemail, and there is a good chance we will play that voicemail on this program. Tomorrow, oh, what a week it was, where we recap the week that was in Chicago and or Illinois news. And you know what? There could very well be a mystery guest. Oh, oh my God. I won't even tell Ben. How about that? He's hung up. He has no clue I'm telling you this right now. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.